Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweller since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that puts the ha into Parliament, the lol into the House of Kamlolmans, and the teehee into Teheriza May. <clears throat> this is episode 111. I'm Tina Duyeb, and this week, as Brexit Secretary and stand for Patrick Bateman, Dominic Raab says again, God, it's boring, that the UK will refuse to pay its Brexit bill of £39 billion unless the EU fulfills its side of the bargain. I'm really wondering if I can just avoid paying for all my drunken eBay purchases until eBay take responsibility for having their website online at 3am and allowing someone as highly irresponsible as me to have an account. They should have known no one would really want 100 Christmas-themed rubber ducks. They should have known. A good chunk of the last week's politics could have been replaced with a repeat, as after the government voted for an amendment that ruined their own bill, in a move that's very much like a parliamentary version of willingly stepping on a rake, we have now returned to a world where it's the EU's fault that the UK still haven't got a clue what they're doing. I hadn't realised that our place in the EU was as the child who needed constant monitoring and on leaving have found ourselves in a different supermarket aisle, wondering why none of the hands we grab are our mums. The Commons appears to be heading for a summer recess akin to a self-destructive version of Home Alone, where no one tries to rob our things, but instead the government just willingly throws all our belongings away and regularly fall into their own booby traps. Yes, the Brexit white paper is now a muddied one, as the government voted for an amendment that made their own Irish backstop prospect illegal, meaning that the EU won't go for it, and yes, we're going to have to start all over again. Then the next night, they willingly voted against their own plan for a customs partnership plan, aided by four Labour MPs who still seem to think that being in opposition means against their own party, I swear it's less of a party and more of a cat herding contest herded by other cats and former Liberal Democrat leader and Poddington P, Tim Farron being absent so he can tell people elsewhere about how bad gay sex is even though he hasn't tried it yet. Current Lib Dem leader and owner of the old curiosity shop Vince Cable was also absent as apparently he was discussing a new anti-Brexit centrist party which when you're the leader of an anti-Brexit centrist party is just a little bit cutting. The Conservative whips also broke the parliamentary pairing system as Conservative MP and dodgy car salesman Brandon Lewis voted, despite his arrangement to pair with Lib Dem MP and that teacher you remember being nice but you can't remember her name or what she did, Joe Swinson, who's currently on maternity leave and therefore can't vote, so Brandon shouldn't have voted either. But it seems Conservative whip and identikit failure Julian Smith told Brandon to do it anyway, which is, to put it lightly, cheating. Still, why any of us should be remotely surprised that the Conservatives, a party now blaming the EU for the fact they've done nothing but pointless soundbites for two years, don't want to uphold their part of shared responsibility. While in Belfast, Prime Minister and the only person whose photo negative is full of bright colours, Theresa May stated that the EU must evolve their Brexit position. And that's cruel wording when in the land of the DUP. I mean, really, to align with them, she should have prayed that everything would just be fixed and then closed her eyes and crossed her fingers for ages. Though, to be fair, there's not much difference between the two stances, to be honest. This pointless bravado and ill-thought-through finger-pointing was carried on by the Foreign Secretary and giant pencil Jeremy Hunt, who's told the EU that they shouldn't expect the UK to blink first on Brexit, so they have to back down. But the EU obviously knows that the UK government can't possibly blink when it has its eyes so permanently closed. 
From their more tempered side of things, the EU have said the white paper opened the way to constructive discussion, which is a lot like when I tell you the play you were in was interesting. Ultimately, we both know it's shit, but hey, one of the characters wore a nice hat. Meanwhile, the EU have prepared a 16-page document preparing for a no-deal, which is nice to say that someone's finally done some prep work to do with Brexit. I mean, I believe it just has Don't Panic written on the front and a coupon for discounts on a free beach towel. According to their 16-page document, no deal means no transition period, and it means the UK being immediately cut off from the EU, despite us having no plans at all to deal with that. But meanwhile, at home, rather than do everything they can to stop that happening, Dominic Raab still insists a no deal would affect the EU more than us. Sure, mate, I mean, we'll be just fine without food or medicine or most other goods or travel to Europe. Why not just make Bear Grylls the main contender to Theresa May and we'll spend our days trying to squeeze water from cow turds and living the British dream? Raab refused to deny claims that the government is planning to stockpile food in case of a no deal, though that's probably because he hadn't actually thought of that till he was asked about it, and now needs to call round Pret a Monger and buy in a ton of the only sandwich he eats or he wouldn't make it through the first week. Brexiteer MP and the hooded claw, Jacob Rees-Mogg, said in an interview that it could take up to 50 years to see whether Brexit has been an economic success or not, which I think in his head is in around 1910. Still, at least if Brexit is somehow a success, by 50 years' time he'll be dead and won't be able to see it. Win! Not that it matters much to him as the city firm Somerset Capital that he co-founded has set up a second investment fund in Ireland in case of a hard Brexit, so all I can hope is that they make him cross a sea-based Irish border by himself in a dinghy to get any dividends, especially during stormy weather. Former Foreign Secretary and current donut Boris Johnson gave his resignation speech to a fairly empty parliament, and it was much less Geoffrey Howe, much more Geoffrey Why. His main points were that it's not too late to save Brexit, and I hope he means in one of those lifetime ISA accounts that no one can access for years. Bojo said May had been dithering over Brexit before saying that her checkers plan would leave the UK in a miserable limbo, but that is coming from a man who only bends backwards for himself. What if the kingpin was also a raisin, Nicholas Soames, and Anna, rebel is my ironic nickname, Subri, have called for a government of national unity, which is sort of what Winston Churchill did with the war ministry in World War II, though it doesn't really seem the same sort of crisis when each party is just at war with themselves. And it's pretty hard to join forces in tackling the hard right, when most of them will likely be involved in the first place. The government were also defeated in their bill for Parliament to go on recess five days early, as it turns out just running away from responsibility isn't a good look. There's every chance they'd have somehow blamed it on their constituents for not fulfilling their side of the bargain anyway. This means though that they have to sit this week on Monday and Tuesday, but presumably they'll just watch a video and play outdoor games before all giving the Speaker a shitty present that their parents bought. Meanwhile, suspicious Badger and Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party are caught up yet again in another row about anti-Semitism within the party, as they rejected the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of Jew hate in place of their own. I mean, sure, there's nothing that instills confidence in voters who are concerned a party has members with anti-Semitic views than them rejecting the international code and deciding that they know best based on their opinions that no one trusts. It'd be like the Conservatives scrapping the Human Rights Act, but reassuring everyone by replacing it with the vague non-existent British Bill of Rights. Uh, oh, oh wait. Labour dame and woman made entirely of bits of discarded Anne Robinson, Margaret Hodge, told Corbyn that he was a fucking anti-Semite and a racist, but on the plus side, at least she assumes he's still sexually active at 69. The bits Labour don't want to include, from the IHRA definition, largely revolve around criticism of Israel, but they are quite broad, and the only other party to refuse to sign up to the IHRA definition is Fidesz, the party of populist and increasingly far-right Hungarian leader Viktor Orban. So for Labour to be aligned with them in any way is not a great look, especially for a party who for so long have campaigned for people not to be hungry. And lastly, US President and baboon ass Donald Trump has used his Twitter to threaten doodle-proof Iranian President Rouhani, saying they will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have suffered before. Judging by Trump's recent exchange with fun-sized dictator Kim Jong-un, that means he'll be having a summit with Rouhani very soon, giving them everything they want, not taking anything for the US in return, and then getting angry weeks later when none of it's worked out. It feels very much like Donald Trump's foreign policy is just to neg everyone that he wants to bang. If that's the case, then London Mayor Sadiq Khan is due for a booty call any day now. Oh, and during a question and answer session with factory workers in Newcastle, Theresa May was asked what she did to unwind, and she said that she enjoys cooking and has over 150 cookbooks, which is impressive as in politics she only ever manages to get in a soup. She also said she enjoys naval-based US crime series NCIS, which is not only a shit show, but also makes me really worry that she's only going to seriously investigate Brexit once absolutely everything has sunk. 
Greetings, Parpol Broods. Thank you once again for tuning in, and I hope as you listen to this that your ears aren't sweating profusely. I didn't even know ears could sweat until this current heatwave, and yet here we are, and my luggles are like veritable rock pools, and I don't even listen to that sort of music. I mean, I know it's basically a British trait to complain about the weather when it's cold and then get all pissed off when it's hot, but I think that's because we don't do either type of weather very well. I mean, when it's cold, it's a wet cold right in your face, and nothing works because we're never prepared for it, even though it's happened every year since the dawn of time. And then when it's hot, it's sort of armpit hot where each ray of sun appears to have been filtered through an old damp rag and no one's prepared for it no aircon argos always sells out of fans and the only swimming pools are always full of child wee just full of it just to, to the brink still though it's uh this weather is better than no weather right regardless of what Theresa may might say um but yeah mostly i hope you're not too toasty while listening and hopefully you found a way to escape all responsibility and you're relaxing somewhere cool like uh the freezer aisle in your local supermarket i spent about 30 minutes by the peas today and let me tell you it was delightful um this is as i mentioned last week the lastest podcast for some weeks as um it and mostly me takes a summer break i used to be able to justify a break with the fact that summer was silly season but that's kind of now been ruined by all the news all year round being endless really silly season i mean maybe summer should now be referred to as i don't know finally a fucking breather season um so uh, a short breather for me which is needed and one for you uh which hopefully you will enjoy and as i've mentioned before if things go bonkers then i'll try and fire out some bonus episodes if needed but some things before you hear the show and then descend into Will Smith's favourite part of the year. Uh, firstly, the obvious ones that I always do, because, hey, you're going to have around six weeks this time to pop a review of the show up online. It's going to take you five minutes. Uh, you can do it on holiday by the pool once you've checked your children aren't trying to push each other into the suction filter. Or you can do it during your summer job when you have a customer you really don't like. Or while you're at a festival watching a band you've never heard of sing a cover of a song you used to like until they ruined it. No, you're not meant to do that in that pitch. No, no one wanted Nat King Cole's Nature Boy done as dubstep anyway during those moments why not just head to stitcher itunes podbeans castbox or others and give this show a little five star rating with some nice words thanking you um also you have six weeks or so to donate to the patreon.com forward slash parpol bro or kofi ko hyphen fi.com forward slash parpol bro uh maybe you know donate uh you could do your monthly with patreon or one-off for kofi and maybe uh if you want to be really fancy you could either donate just a, a one-off thing or maybe donate a little bit for all the shows that you've enjoyed so far this year uh even so you can just tell your kids that you can't buy them ice cream as you've given all your money to a bearded idiot instead great get out clause what do you reckon yeah yeah uh, right, now, as well as all those usual pleas, I've got a new one this week. Um, I set up a survey last week for all you listeners, and it's going to just take five minutes to answer. And mainly, uh, it's with the aim that I can make this show even better when it returns. So, the link is in the podcast blurb for this episode. And thank you to the 17 people that have already filled it in. And I'm now aware I need to find uh, a better programme for recording the interviews over Skype. And the interviews should probably be shorter. And that no matter how many times I explain why I won't interview MPs, someone will always suggest I interview MPs. Hey, look, if you really want me to, I will will try but it'll be all well this party doesn't do this and our party does do this and then every time I ask them an actual question you want to answer they'll just ask another question instead and it'll be really annoying and generally I prefer people who explain stuff but Anyway, all of those so far have been very, very useful answers. Thank you for those. And if you haven't done the survey, um, please, please, please do click on it. It's uh, I've put it in the podcast blurb for this episode if you check on that. And I'm also going to tweet it out and Facebook the link a few times over the next week too. Thank you, new. Um, if you suffer withdrawal symptoms from my dulcet tones over the summer, I mean, it's very likely, isn't it? You're not going to get this in your ears. How are you going to deal with that? Well, firstly, there's old podcast episodes. If there's ones you haven't heard before, check them out uh, on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk. Um, and but also I'm on some other podcasts yeah I've betrayed this one I've totally cheated on it uh, you can find me on the Flix Watcher podcast uh, where I talk all about the brilliant Irish independent film The Young Offenders and then I completely forgot to watch Jason Reed from the Stop and Searches podcast's uh, film choice uh, and then I'm generally unhelpful on that episode uh, whoops anyway um, I'm also on last week's comedy cast and I'm also going to be on an upcoming Postcards from the Past podcast with Rachel Paris which was lots of fun so check all of those things out um, also so, uh, live-wise, if any of you are at Greenman Festival this year, the loveliest of all the festivals, I mean, it's in a bloody valley. It's so nice. They put matting on the grass, so even if it rains, it's not muddy. How good is that? They're so smart. God, they're great. Anyway, I'll be on the comedy stage on the Friday at 7.30 doing a 30-minute set of mostly politics and probably baby nonsense. Um, uh, do come and see me and say hello. Um, also, the kids' politics show that I'm doing with Tatton uh, from Simple Politics is at the Milton Keynes International Festival at the Stable Spiegel tent at 11.30am on 
on July the 29th, uh, and then the Artrix Bromsgrove on August the 1st at 2pm, and then at Norden Farm in Maidenhead on August the 11th at 2pm as well, I think. I mean, I could Google, where's the fun in that? Why ruin the adventure? Why don't you check it out? I mean, if you're in Maidenhead, based on your MP, you could probably do with coming along and learning something. Have a look online. Um, then in autumn, uh, we're at the Egg Theatre in Bath and then the Hartford Theatre as well, um, all in September and more after that as well. I'll tell you about it nearer the time. Um, but that's the kids show. It's suitable for all age seven plus and unlike this podcast, it's entirely non-partisan even somehow when we discuss Brexit. I don't really know how we manage that. Um, so do bring your little people along. It'll be brilliant. And lastly, bloody hell, I'm more busy than I thought. It's not really a break is it? And um, finally, I am doing some shows in Hong Kong in September, which is crazy exciting. Uh, if you are a Hong Kong based listener, which uh, you might be, I have no idea. I know that this show gets around two to 300 listeners a week from China, um, which I guess that's allowed. Is it allowed? Who knows? Um, and I can't exactly see which bits of China they're in. So if you're in that bit, come and see me host the excellent lineup of Beck Hill, Howard Reed and John Fothergill at the Punchline Comedy Club on September the 6th, 7th and 8th. Um, and if you type that into Google, you can just find all the details. I'm not going to do it for you. I'm not your dad. Okay, so this last show of the summer, I am speaking to Sam Jeffers at Who Targets Me, uh, all about online political advertising and its transparency, something that's all become relevant due to vote leaves overspending and all that, which is lucky, because I interviewed him a few weeks ago when it wasn't relevant. Hooray, the news is awful, and sometimes it works out. Um, And there is also a wee look at Labour's anti-Semitism issues again, and Brexit again. And ah, this is endless, isn't it? How is this exactly the same stuff that was a problem last year? How do we reset everything over summer and start again? Again. Why can't Theresa May go on a walking holiday and come back having listened to decent podcasts instead of unknow her husband and have some good ideas for once? Or I don't know, at least just fall down a crevice. Fingers crossed for either one of those outcomes. I'm really not fussy. Anyway, here you go. For the last time this season, it's this. Who'd have thought a year ago when the Conservatives had no plan for Brexit and Labour were dealing with mass accusations of anti-Semitism that we'd be here a whole year later having progressed and moved on to, well, exactly the same place we were, like the world's most boring Groundhog Day remake where even the Groundhog doesn't want to star in it and they just have to get a very fat, sick otter instead. The former, well, we'll deal with that later, uh, like with every single goddamn fucking week, fucking Brexit. But the Labour Party's anti-Semitism issues have flared up again, with big old flames, not unlike a sort of menorah, but perhaps without the ninth helper candles, so they're all just flailing around, slowly burning themselves out. This time, though, Labour's National Executive Committee and Jeremy Corbyn all agreed to approve a new code of conduct on anti-Semitism, which states, Anti-Semitism is racism, it is unacceptable in our party and wider society. And I mean... If I stop there, that'd sound all right, wouldn't it? You know, turn this off, forget this podcast, well done, you got a new code, you're doing something great, everyone go home, have a pie. Always have a pie. Except this code doesn't quite follow the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, even though that's what the Parliamentary Labour Party voted it should do beforehand, and in June of last year, the European Parliament voted to adopt it across all its member states, something that was taken up absolutely everywhere, except by Viktor Orban's party in Hungary, a party who were also known to be, well, massive racist. And when that sort of thing happens, you kind of want to distance yourself, right? If you're an anti-racist party, you don't really want to be associated with the racist, it's like when you realise dickheads like the same band as you, and so very quickly, you stop liking that band. Or at least, you know, not going to their live gigs anymore. Blur, I'm looking at you. Blur, I am looking at you. Um, that's 31 countries, 130 councils in the UK, the Crown Prosecution Service and the Judiciary, who've all taken the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, and Labour went, no thanks, as you can tell from our record on this, we've got it in hand. You're welcome. There are four examples of anti-Semitism in the IHRA's definition that Labour have rejected, and those are accusing Jewish people of being more loyal to Israel than their home country, claiming that Israel's existence as a state is a racist endeavour, requiring higher standards of behaviour from Israel than other nations, and comparing contemporary Israeli policies to those of Nazis. Now, you might think, well, they haven't picked those because they want to be critical of Israel's uh, government, who have done some really awful stuff. Uh, But yeah, again, we come to the fine lines between being critical of Israel and being anti-Semitic. Because, sure, hey, say Israel has just passed an extremely racist new law that makes it a Jewish nation-state at the brutal expense of all its Arabic citizens. But that doesn't mean you have to state that the state's entire existence is racist. You can instead say that looking for a two-state solution is clearly best for everyone. 
I mean, it's pretty easy to go through all four of those and still be critical when you need to. Let's pick another one. Does Labour really require a higher standard of behaviour from Israel than other nations? Or can they just say, hey, Israel are as shitty to Palestinians as Saudi Arabia are to Yemen? And that shit needs to stop all over the place. Also, Luxembourger dicks, just because. You see, you do start to wonder if they've not just taken these on in case it means several more members have to be sacked than they could do with. It's also worth pointing out the Conservative Party rulebook didn't have the IHRA code in it either or use the term anti-Semitism at all, well, until Channel 4 Fat Chick has pointed it out and then they quietly added it, hoping no one else would notice. I mean, they had to. They can't be the party of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. I mean, that's just greedy and they can't keep taking all the Labour policies. Bloody hell. But this is really not a great look for Labour, a party who already had issues in this area to avoid doing something they could have done to make this issue go away and ease their Jewish members, especially in the week that they're finally ahead in the polls overall. I mean, it's amazing that an entire party can exhibit self-destructive behaviour, but I'm really starting to think that if they do win a general election ever, the first thing Corbyn would do is step down and hand leadership to a sad pigeon because he just couldn't help himself. It's this sort of decision that led Labour MP Dame Margaret Hodge, a woman best known for ignoring child abuse in Islington and calling out tax dodgers while receiving funds from an offshore family account to call Corbyn a fucking anti-Semite and a racist, which is now, of course, the biggest story. And you do sort of think, well, you could have just avoided all of this, and now you've been shamed by a really shameful idiot, which is super low. It's like a werewolf telling you you need a haircut and a shave. They might not be entirely wrong, but damn it hurts coming from them. Now Hodge is facing disciplinary action, which is good and swift, but then compared to how long it took to discipline Ken every other word is Hitler Livingston, or even, for a different matter, Jared O'Mara, who managed to resign first because it was taking so long, it does seem odd that Labour didn't just think that it might make things equal out a little bit if they delayed Hodge's disciplinary just a wee bit and at least tried to pretend to be equal with all of these things. I mean, it just seems beyond them to do that. There is an emergency meeting in Parliament tonight, though Corbyn says he doesn't want the party to discuss this matter before summer, and I'm really starting to wonder if Labour's campaign slogan next election is just going to be, hey, we're so in tune with everyday people that really, in fact, probably you could just do a better job than us. The term target means a person, object or place selected as the aim of attack, which I think is why when clever media and advertising bonds talk of a target market, I just really worry that a lot of tasty fruit and veg and some rip-off Levi's are about to get unnecessarily blown up. In terms of political advertising, targeting has taken on a whole new level of importance thanks to social media, with parties doubling their Facebook spending between 2015 and 2017, just so they can hammer home their manifesto policies that they likely won't keep direct to your phone or your tablet, in between you checking if your BFF is okay, hun, looking through your ex's holiday pics in the hope that they're having a shit time, or about to post some weird sycophantic life message that you don't adhere to yourself. But a number of investigations over the last couple of years have revealed that advert targeting isn't all that it seems, with questions over how British political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica targeted people almost individually based on their personal data, or how Labour HQ made adverts just for Jeremy Corbyn so he couldn't see they weren't carrying out his plans at all. So how do you know if the ad that pops up on your homepage or timeline is sent to you by the source it says, or funded by a mysterious Russian agent, some millionaire with a secret agenda, or just your own party being dickheads? And how will this affect political campaigning in the future? Because why go out canvassing when you can just send a message saying, you know it's a bit hypocritical, Dave, if you vote green while spending your weekend shouting at the sea telling fish to fuck off. This week I spoke to Sam Jeffers, co-founder of Who Targets Me, a browser extension that collects data from the ads you see on your social media sites and tells you exactly who they're from in the aim of increasing political advertising transparency. He very kindly told me how it all works, what they're using the data for and just why this is such an important issue in both the UK and global politics. Here is Sam. So what is Who Targets Me and why did you start it up? So Who Targets Me is an effort to track political Facebook advertising. So really to understand how that's being used to influence voters, um, you know, what parties are doing, what targeting they're using, what spending, uh, what messages they're putting out there. And so to try and help people understand that and interpret that. Um, and so the reason we started it was really because that was a completely unknown area. I mean, there's very little data or research about the use of social media advertising in politics at all. Uh, there'd been three elections in a row. So the 2015 election where the Tories said that Facebook ads were a big part of their their victory then, uh, the 2016 Brexit referendum, and then the, the Trump victory as well, where Facebook ads had seemed to kind of produce an unexpected result. All three campaigns had claimed they were an important thing. Uh, and the polls are pointing in one direction, the result came out in another. And so like when the 2017 election came around here, 
it felt like an opportunity to, to really examine that in a lot more detail. How much of a difference do you think that it's making to the political landscape, this kind of targeting advertisers? Because I know, obviously, it's very difficult to work out if, say, psychometrics has, has an impact or not, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. I think we're still really early in the research of, of the impact of this stuff. I mean, you know, frankly, even in, in the US where there's been, you know, 50 years of TV advertising, it's it's not always clear what the impact of that is uh, in terms of the sort of long-term research agenda. So, you know, it's a very difficult thing to to kind of unpick and isolate from other communications. You know, elections are these very special times, really, when, you know, much more attention is being paid to politics. The entire media is kind of amplifying different messages all over the place. Candidates get a lot more time and visibility. And then alongside this, we now have, you know, in the in the UK's case, millions of pounds being spent on the on Facebook, social media advertising, Facebook advertising. Uh, in the US, that's getting close to billions of dollars now being spent per cycle on uh, social media advertising. So, you know, you've got this huge new thing that's come in. It's very tempting for campaigns to use it because they think, well, we can reach our voters without having to build any kind of prior relationship with them. We can just say, right, these are the people we want to go after. Let's put our ads in front of those people. You know, we'll get out the credit card and, and, and pay the money. But actually, in terms of like both turnout effect and vote share, it's not totally clear that spending, you know, a million quid on Facebook ads is a, is a sort of decisive factor just yet. Right. But I'm guessing people are spending money on it because they must at least think it works. Or, they, you know, there, uh, there must be something that people can see from it to be spending that much uh, sort of campaign funds on it. Yeah, I think so. So I think what people know is that they're reaching people, which, you know, they have always tried to do that. Right. So knocking on doors, delivering leaflets, you know, Facebook advertising is uh, a factor of 10, uh, you know, cheaper than any of those sorts of things, maybe maybe even more than that. You know, political campaigns find these ads really tempting. They're they're very cheap. They're very targeted. You can go back to the same people over and over again. Uh, you can see who's engaging with them. Uh, you, you know, there's a totally different type of communication, really, that you're, you're kind of starting off by, by virtue of putting stuff on social media. You know, people can share your stuff, for example. So that gives you more value for money. So, you know, no one in no one's ever handed around an election leaflet to 300 of their friends and said, look at this amazing election leaflet. You know, I love it. It's, it's terrific. So, so, you know, the temptation to use social media is very, very great. And then you see that in the kind of growing expenditure among political parties uh, uh, on it. And one of the things that, uh, you, you know, you, you're aiming to do with Who Targets Me is kind of uh, increase the transparency in online advertising. I mean, how much of a threat is the kind of secrecy of, of who's targeting you? Because I know, obviously, we've had the, the Cambridge Analytica story has been in the news, which I think has raised some awareness. And, and I know that still hasn't been entirely fully investigated um, yet. But, you know, um, how, you know, how little do people know about who's who's actually targeting them at the moment? I think it's I think it's the, the fact that for us you kind of approach it from the other angle, which is what what does kind of good democracy look like? And it looks like you know open debates with conclusions arrived at through you know the reconciliation of different points of view across society and all these sorts of things. And what you have with kind of micro targeting and dark ads is the ability to show one thing to one set of people and another thing to another set of people, and, and never really allow the other, you know, them to kind of know about that. And so, you know, the argument for transparency has been to try and avoid that happening and to keep, you know, us kind of debating national political issues at a broad national level. Um, you know, what you do, though, see around the edges of some of the work we're doing is is pages that are set up that have, you know, no attribution behind them. So, you know, there's no contact information, no real sense of who who's set it up in the first place, running ads about quite often controversial topics um, and pushing them to specific groups of people, again, that they think will be persuaded by it. And, you know, in that sense, you know, you can kind of look at that as part of a, a an effort to sort of stretch debates in directions that maybe they wouldn't previously been stretched in. So recently we've been looking at a page that, for example, is called it's called Hard Brexit or Civil War? Question um, mark. And, you know, the page has no contact information on it. And it's clearly trying to pull people towards the direction that if Brexit were to somehow fail, uh, then, you know, violence or other sort of civil disobedience is an appropriate response to, to happening. And, you know, the page has a couple of thousand people uh, on it. it. It's growing slowly, you know, a couple hundred people a week. It seems to be growing at the rate of. Uh, they're running ads. Um, and, you know, they're pushing a kind of general sort of, you know, right wing agenda. So, you know, some of the posts are Islamophobic. Some of the posts are pro Tommy Robinson. 
you know, other posts are very anti-Jeremy Corbyn and the left in general. But generally, they, they want to see, you know, a, a hard Brexit or a kind of no deal Brexit. And the alternative is, is violence. Now, you know, it may not be that the followers of that page do anything, but, you know, there are clearly examples of the Internet kind of radicalizing people to take certain views on. And, and that's a very sort of anti-government, anti-establishment perspective to take, you know, violence, you know. And so that stuff around the edges we find really, really interesting as well, because it's it's trying to stretch debates in directions they wouldn't otherwise have gone. Sure. And, and I, mean, I guess with things like that, if they're advertising, they must be funding it somehow. And is that coming, you know, is it it's very hard to know if that's an individual person's page or if it's coming from some larger campaign group? Exactly. So that so that could be coming from an individual with a credit card. You know, it doesn't cost a lot of money to reach 2000 followers of a page. Uh, it could be coming from exactly, as you say, a campaign group that wants that has a particular perspective on on Brexit. It could be coming from Russia or another foreign power because it looks very similar to the stuff that they were doing in the in the 2016 election. Uh, you know, it could just be from people who want to watch the world burn. You know, it, it's like a you know, it's a, a very difficult thing to understand and read the full intentions of that that particular advertisement and and the page behind it because there's not enough transparency to do so. So, you know, if it just turns out to be like someone in a you know Bre- you know brexit supporting person in britain with a particularly strong view on it it's maybe you know feels less worrying than if it were a state controlled propaganda effort but you know it still might have the same effect which is to to get someone or some people out on the streets you know trying to hurt other people uh, as a result of some political decisions that were made so you know there's a you know a real challenge you know in terms of getting more transparency because it just allows us to interpret things more clearly and, and maybe be reassured by some stuff, but also potentially to know how, what to be really concerned about. I mean, with the thing, because social media can just reach so many people in such a short amount of time. And I think, as you say, it's all political sides. It can cause, you know, if, if we look towards um, the Trump process that's coming up this week, uh, that will already have gone by the time people hear this. But, you know, that, that's all been put together over Facebook, um, you know, or various Brexit protests and, and Tommy Robinson things have all been put together via... In, I mean, with this level of... Um, direct contact with people surely the electoral commission is going to have to update this must now be the future of campaigning yeah it seems that way i mean and you know we may only be early in the future of campaigning you know there's there's lots of stuff that is imaginable from a kind of technological perspective that we think you know it would be good to start worrying about and thinking about now in terms of, of regulating elections you know democracy is a relatively long term and stable thing and yet every cycle uh, electoral cycle something new emerges or people are trying different techniques or using data in a different way and so on. So we think that the Electoral Commission probably should start looking both at what's already happened over the last five to 10 years in terms of sort of social media advertising and, and just that general ability to reach anyone at scale from your bedroom. But at the same time, to also think about like, well, how would bad actors potentially misuse new technology in the future to target people, to, you know, trick them into believing certain things, to personalise messages for them at basically zero cost, uh, you know, and what new rules are required to do that. And so, yes, the Electoral Commission and a few others are beginning to put some recommendations forward around social media advertising. But, you know, it's also important to think about, well, what happens in the next cycle or what's going to be happening five, ten years from now? Because, you know, often you'll look at the US and you'll look at other places where, you know, there's frankly, there's more money in, in elections and therefore they get to experiment with new things. And then one or two cycles behind that, it comes over to the UK and suddenly that's that's what we're doing. And, um, you know, that feels a bit too uh, unintentional for our liking. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I mean, how much do you think... Um... Uh, how much should be on the part of the social media sites? How much should they be responsible for it? I know, obviously, Mark Zuckerberg met a uh, US Congress, uh, which I mean, it looked like most of the Congress were very confused by everything he said. And, and then he met the U, uh, EU Parliament, but he doesn't seem to take that much responsibility in dealing with this. Do you think it should be on the part of the sites or, you know, should it be on the part of, of governments um, and sort of uh, countries' own democracy to be dealing with it? Yeah, I mean, I think in the first instance, it would be good to see you know, countries own democracy to, you know, to go through a process to decide what it wants to have happen, you know, and, and that, again, comes from this principle of like, well, what does good democracy look like in the first place? And so if we can establish some some clear stuff there, and some rules around, well, how do we want to see campaigning take place? And what sorts of rules should we put around campaigns to make sure that people can trust where the messages are coming from, who's buying it, and all the rest of it, 
then that feels like a good start point to then go back to platforms and say, well, this is what we want you to make. And at the moment, it feels like we're in this kind of really like stuck place between those two things. You know, Facebook has been under a lot of pressure. They're building some new transparency tools. They're doing them kind of without really asking anyone else what they think about it uh, or what they think is needed. They're sort of just doing what they think will probably get them past this story and allow them to, to point to, you know, probably their advertisers and say, well, it's the advertisers that are doing bad stuff. It's not us. Look, we are we are transparent and above board. Whereas, in fact, what probably needs to happen is there needs to be a kind of mixture of people that involve the platforms, governments, civil society groups, and all the rest of it getting around together and saying, well, this is what we think good looks like. Let's let's set that standard really, really high and make the things that we need to make in order to have, you know, good quality campaigns and elections. And, um, you know, it feels like we're quite a long way from that at the moment. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Sam in a minute, but first... This is a public service announcement. A no-deal Brexit could happen at any time. You must make sure you and your family are protected and can survive. If you hear this siren, then a no-deal Brexit has occurred. If you are indoors when you hear this, open your windows and doors paint the Union Jack on the faces of all the members of your family and start shouting Ingerland and you should immediately establish yourself to surrounding Britons as one to trust come the purge. If you cheer with enough enthusiasm, this may exhaust you to the point of forgetting just how hungry you are, saving one of your stockpiled tin of curried baked beans for yet another day. As soon as you are able, Make sure you adorn your home in traditional British items. An old China tea set of Charles and Diana's wedding. A keep calm and carry on poster. Several jars of jam. A dubious looking racist doll. This should help stave off any visits from the Brexit police, who will be looking for traitors to sacrifice in order to keep population down so the provisions will last another week. If you are outdoors when the siren occurs... Run immediately to your nearest public house, where you should order a strong British ale and drink as quickly as possible before looking around the room claiming you are a legend. Make sure to refill as quickly as possible with another pint, as while it makes you appear strong and Britishness-like, there will soon be a shortage of all liquid, and it is good to hydrate while you can before the drought. A good way to distract yourself from the lack of planes in the sky or abandoned lorries lining the roads is to take out your new blue passport and look at it, imagining how, maybe in 50 years' time or so, it will allow you to leave the country again for perhaps a holiday or weekend jaunt. Of course, they will also have to bring back weekends too. Be careful, a no-deal Brexit could happen at any time.
Lennon, I hear you ask. What good news do you bring about Brexit to send us into the sweltering summer with so we can relax mindlessly, just all reassured that there is ultimately nothing to worry about? Sure, sure, sure. Look, I can do that. I can do that for you guys. Okay. Um, well, if you look at the photo of Earth from the Voyager 1 space probe taken approximately 6 billion miles away where our planet is less than a pixel in size, you realise that actually, in the vast scheme of things, Brexit isn't all that important and is only a tiny fraction of time compared to infinite happenings. And ultimately, none of our lives matter. Does that does that help? No. No. Okay, sure. Uh, let me try again. Um, how about, hey, Brexit could be over a lot quicker than you think. Is that helpful? No, don't ask why. Don't ask me why. No, just carry on and be happy. Don't ask why. Ah, oh, fuck. Okay. Okay, it's because chances of a no deal are real high, so we could just be unceremoniously catapulted out of the European Union like a large, burning, burdensome rock without any transition deal or anything, meaning Brexit itself will be done by the end of March next year, and then we don't have to hear about it anymore. Why are you crying into your cocktail? Oh, I said not to ask, Dagnabbit. Yes, after Theresa May said time and time again, no deal is better than a bad deal, she put out the offer of a bad deal that no one wanted, meaning no deal is back on the table, and now no one wants to eat at the table as it's causing a real stink. To be honest, we'll probably have to throw the table out or set fire to something now, that's where we are. So to break it down, the white paper, which the EU probably wouldn't have accepted entirely anyway, is now dead because the Brexiteer Conservatives gave the government amendments that meant they essentially sabotaged their own plan, meaning really the last three weeks of work could have just not happened and we'd be in exactly the same position except slightly less angry at four Labour MPs, two Lib Dem MPs and the Conservative Whip. So now the Irish border backstop is illegal and can't happen. Uh, the government won't have to join the European Customs Union if Brexit talks fail. And the only thing that they were defeated on was having to stay part of the European Medicines Agency, which is great because everyone is already very sick of all these plans of these obviously fevered minds. So now, once again, the possibility of there being a no deal is back, with different people telling you how good or bad that is depending on what you and they want to hear and how little you've read and how much they've drunk. Let's put it this way, there's very few areas where none of something is better than a bad of something, right? Um, nuclear war is probably one. No war is better than a bad war. Yep, true. Uh, sickness as well, for example, no gonorrhea is better than bad gonorrhea. Sure, but apart from those obvious few, it starts getting a bit shady. I mean, for example, even no news is better than bad news. That makes you wonder why there's no news at all. I mean, has there been a military coup taking over the news stations? Has all life ceased to exist? It's a bit creepy if you ask me, isn't it? And similarly, no deal is exactly that. No deal. It does what it says on the tin that you're stockpiling. And so when it comes to trading on pretty much everything from fruit and veg to whether planes can land or have to just circle the UK like a metal vulture looking over the long dead scraps of a once alive land, then really no deal is very much the worst deal you could have because it's not even a deal. According to the IMF, a no deal would hurt EU countries, but nowhere near as much as hurting the UK and Ireland, which would be damaged the most. So even if you're all for Brexit because you simply want to hurt the EU, the UK going for a no deal as an option is like us cutting off our arm and bleeding to death, while all they have to deal with is a stained carpet. Looking at the 16-page document the EU have done on a no-deal, um, it includes quite a number of factors. Uh, this includes the fact that there would be no transition deal if we had a no-deal, so we'd be out immediately from the 30th of March 2019. Uh, there'd be significant delays at borders while customs procedures are fulfilled. Uh, the UK would be disconnected from a number of databases that they'll no longer have access to, and the UK would become a third country, which would give us the same trading rights as, well, a lot of non-EU countries. It's a lot like the clock would strike midnight in Europe, which of course is only 11pm here, and the EU would open the windows and start throwing all our belongings out into the street, and if we showed up to collect them while they were in, they'd call the police. That's a no deal. And so rather than fix it, the government are either, like Jeremy Hunt is warning, saying that we might get a no deal by accident, you know, in the accidental way the government have failed to plan for this in over two years because they thought sheer national pride and saying we believe in Brexit would power us through, you know, in the same way thoughts and prayers are currently solving gun violence in the US. Or they're blaming the EU for it, which never seems to be like a great idea, and without government backing, Dominic Raab is saying that we can threaten to not pay the Brexit dividend we owe, even though we owe it and have agreed to it, and how does that look to other potential trade deals if we approach them saying, hey, Hey, sign up to stuff with us and we'll likely back out last minute and then tell everyone it's your fault. So here we are with the summer ahead and the only real options for this to go anywhere are a leadership contest in the Conservative Party, ousting mate and placing someone else in charge. But then who are the options? Boris? Javid? It's like choosing to upgrade your smartphone to an old white dog turd. And who'd want to take that job on? I mean that's not just a poison chalice, that's a party keg of Novichok. Then there's the possibility of a national government of unity, which would require all parties to take responsibility for Brexit, which no one wants to do at all. 
So then, maybe a general election, again. Except the general public don't really want that, and based on current polls, it'd either be Conservatives again, with the same lack of majority, or Labour uh, with the same lack of majority, and neither would be able to push through policies easily, meaning it would be entirely pointless, and we'd just have to hear shitty campaign slogans for weeks just to make it all worse. What no one needs right now is all of this Brexit mess, plus having to hear strong and stable ever again, unless it's referring to a weightlifting and equestrian circus duo, and even then, it's pushing it. The fourth possibility is a people's vote, which I explained why it'd be difficult to do last week, and a recent YouGov poll in the Times showed that with three vote options, 50% would now back remaining in the EU, 17% want to leave with a deal, and 33% want a no deal because eating's overrated, and hey, if you're going to do a job badly, do it properly badly. That's the saying, right? Right? But if we had a people's vote and remain one, then I guess the government could just cancel all of this and then we'll go back to the good old fighting each other over all the other shitty decisions and dealing with the fallout of the diehard Brexiteers foaming at the mouth so much the Commons becomes like some sort of soapy Ibiza party. But if we didn't have a people's vote, then uh, we could have all 27 EU states agree to extend the Article 50 deadline, giving the government more time on everything. But, I mean, if they did that, they'd be thinking the whole time, what, extend it again so you can just piss about for another whole year when we could just shut this shit down now? The EU have already said that they only think about doing that if there was a major shift in UK politics. And Boris Johnson has resigned, so that won't happen. Oh, sorry, they said shift. Oh, oh, I see. Still, though, Dominic Raab is certain the government will have a Brexit deal by October, and he promises to head to Brussels this week and strain every sinew, he says, which mostly sounds like he's going to shit himself. And I feel like if the threats about the Brexit bill won't work, neither will a dirty protest, Dom. Over the summer, various cabinet ministers are being sent around Europe to meet various leaders to try and rescue the deal. And you see... There's the good news. Right there, I found it. I found it, guys, because I know you're all worried about what two months away from Parliament would do for our Brexit chances, and it all looked pretty bleak, but now you know that Jeremy Hunt is going to Germany, David Lidlington is going to France, Sajid Javid to Spain, and Greg Clark to Italy. You're all feeling secure, right? Right? Why are you still sad? Okay, maybe just look at that pale blue dot picture until December, yeah? That's it. That's it. And now, back to Sam. I mean, do you think that sometimes my, my personal worry with things like Facebook is it's so big, I can't work out how they could feasibly manage something. You know, it's sort of almost outgrown, I think, what they ever thought it could be. Does that then become unmanageable? You know, like we're talking about some of the, uh, you know, possible country interference with, with advertising, things like that, you know, Russian hacking, et cetera, et cetera. When, it's, when it becomes global, does that then become too big to manage? I certainly don't think it's easy. I mean, I think this is why we're interested in in a really, really high standard of transparency because it allows other people to to sort of monitor and see what's going on as well. You know, I don't think it should be up to Facebook to hire, you know, have many thousands of new people it says it's going to hire to try and deal with some of these problems. Um, you know, they should be in the business of helping other people like us build tools to inform voters about, you know, this ad looks like a foreign uh, influence effort and this ad appears to have claims that are untrue in it. Or, you know, this ad is targeting you because you are, you know, you have these psychological traits, you know, like that sort of stuff I think would be really helpful in terms of giving people more, you know, ability to read and be kind of literate about the, the materials they're seeing. Um, you know, at the moment, all of that is coming out of Facebook, a little bit of it's coming out of Twitter YouTube has some other ideas. Google itself hasn't sort of said much about search. You know, so like everyone has a different approach. And it feels to me like by setting a really high standard for what's available in terms of data and information, then actually you can kind of almost create a marketplace in helping people understand, you know, political communication better. And I think that that would probably be, a, a, you know, a really good place to get to in the future. One of the things that I have uh, I've I've heard about uh, sort of I'm way too old to really know about this, um, but I keep hearing that uh, younger people, sort of people under the age of 25, are using a lot more sort of closed network apps such as WhatsApp, um, Snapchat, and things like that. Is that better? Are people that use those kind of more protected from targeted advertisements? I mean, I think they're currently at least protected to some extent from targeted ads, right? So you know, WhatsApp doesn't really do advertising yet, although it probably will in due course. I think what they're not protected from are, you know, random sharing of links that may include stuff that's completely untrue in it, you know. And so, you know, in the news at the moment, there's a lot of stories coming out of India of WhatsApp groups being, uh, you know, sort of stuff full of fake news and causing people to do really horrible things, you know, sort of lynchings almost uh, of other people uh, as a result of links that they're, you know, news they're seeing in, in WhatsApp groups. And, and the challenge there is because 
because WhatsApp particularly is kind of end-to-end encrypted. No one can really see what's going on. There's no visibility as to, as to the communications that people are receiving. Then, then you have a kind of unknown social problem. So, you know, this stuff ebbs and flows. I mean, I remember in the riots in London a few years ago, everyone was freaking out about BlackBerry Messenger uh, stuff, which had a kind of similar type of problem, you know, people sort of sharing information and coordinating in different ways in ways that the state can't see. And there are big questions about freedom and free speech in general uh, around these kind of communications channels. But we do kind of need to work out how in the longer term to make people understand whether what they're seeing is true, how to interrogate it, you know, what to trust. Um, and I think these are really big questions. And and because the internet is still, you know, despite the big platforms dominance is still so open anyone can make anything, you know, that there are potentially lots of really big problems still out there. Yeah, and I've heard uh, quite a lot of arguments that say what we should be doing is teaching critical thinking in schools so that, as you say, people can just be a lot more aware of what it is that they're taking in. But we live in such a a fast culture. You know, I do all the time. I often just click on things and share them without even thinking about it. It's very hard to sort of retrain yourself to analyse where it's coming from, what it might be saying before you do that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think I think the sort of idea that media literacy will be sort of, you know, in, in this new world will be taught in schools and will be sort of taught the same way as you learn maths or English, you know, like here are some criteria to try and understand, you know, political communications, I think I think isn't quite what literacy should ultimately turn out to be. I think literacy should turn out to be people being allowed to build tools and interpretive things that help you understand what's going on in real time. So, you know, could you have a little app on your phone that is a, you know, a link checker? So as it, you know, it'll pass any links that you click on through some tool that will give you some interpretation that you trust, you know, so it comes from a place where they, okay, I know that they check the facts. I know that they look for these other, you know, these sort of foreign disinformation campaigns. I know that they look for, you know, the sources of money and they can kind of annotate and help you interpret stuff. You know, I'd like to see a place where we could get to better tools for helping people interpret things and that would kind of help them read that sort of constant inflow of information they're getting from from being online uh, all the time. Well, speaking of better tools, um, the Who Targets Me app you can get for Chrome and I assume several other browsers as well? Chrome and Firefox, yeah. Chrome and Firefox. And what do people need to do? They just need to go to the site and then download it. And then what happens from there? Exactly. So go to the site one click to download it and it'll install in your browser. Um, then you can just set it up. So we ask for a little anonymous profile information from people. So, you know, your age, location, gender, uh, a little bit about your political leaning. Um, and then you just leave it alone to do its work. Uh, and so after a while, after it's collected some political ads, you'll see kind of a bar chart breakdown of who's been targeting you. You'll see a, a personalized list of all the ads that have kind of come through your feed. And you'll also be able to see the reasons why you were targeted with those ads. So, um, you know, so that works kind of like gives you some individual information about the advertising you're seeing, allows you to hold politicians and campaigns to account about those messages. You know, did they did they come through with their promises? But at the same time, allows us as a kind of wider project to interpret the trends in advertising generally, you know, what messages are which parties and candidates using where. And so you must already have a sort of a year's worth of data on this now. You started last year, is that correct? Yes, we've got we've got lots of data and, and we've had users uh, install it in over 50 countries as well. So, um, you know, we, we've we've got quite a lot of global data and, and different ways that people are using these ads. That's fascinating. Very exciting. Um, and uh, apart from yourself, obviously, apart from who targets me, which everyone should go and download. Um, what other groups or writers or campaigners would you recommend for listeners to check out if they're interested um, in critical thinking, in sort of targeted political advertising, uh, things around that area? Who, who do you look to for information? Well, I think, you know, we we do a bit of work with uh, with Oxford University, actually. They have uh, an Internet Institute there that, that runs a project that they call the Computational Propaganda Project, which to date has been largely about Twitter bots and, and sort of how links get carried around uh, Twitter. But but they're moving into other social networks and have some really interesting things to say in terms of that, that sort of philosophical divide between you know the need for transparency and some control versus freedom of expression and who gets to who gets to say what, and they're, they're, they're quite good on the philosophy of it. Uh, Full Fact is very good on fact-checking and has some stuff as well about advertising and, and some interest, again, in in transparency in this area. So there's a, there's a few organizations out there kind of working in, in this space. Uh, ProPublica in the U.S. has a similar tool to ours that they use to look at um, 
not just political ads, but ads that sort of are political in nature. So like housing discrimination and, uh, you, you know, issues along those lines where you can see that targeting, in fact, is kind of breaking the law, you know, in itself. And so, um, you know, all of I think all of those organizations kind of point in the general direction of more transparency and more data being available as being a good thing. And I think I think that's where we look about who's who's kind of coming to conclusions based on the actual data that they're seeing. Now, that is the end of the interview. But as we were wrapping up, I suddenly realised that I had absolutely no idea what dark ads were, um, aside from maybe guessing that they were telling people to buy dark. Uh, no, still no idea. So I asked Sam and here he is explaining. I don't know what dark ads are. I know what micro-targeting is. I didn't know what... Yeah. Okay, well, so, so um, dark ads are ads that are targeted at one group of people but don't appear in the public timeline on Facebook. Um, so, you know, most of the ads, in fact, that you see are not posts that if you went to the page who was targeting you that you'd see in their normal timeline. They're not promoted posts. They're not boosting a post. They're, they're just an ad created for the purposes of reaching you and people like you. Um, I suppose what, what's happened now, though, is that Facebook has started to at least publish those ads while they're running. So they're no longer they're no longer truly dark, although you have no sense of who's, who else is seeing an ad uh, or how many people are seeing it or how much money is being spent on it and all of those sorts of things. So, you know, we're hopeful that although like dark ads are less dark than they were, they're still very hard to read and interpret. And, and that's some of the work that we're trying to do. So there you go. Thank you to Sam for the chat and then the explanation. Um, you can find him on Twitter at uh, WRKLSSHRD, work less hard. Um, and you can find and download Who Targets Me at whotargets.me or on Twitter at whotargetsme and on Facebook at, yes, you guessed it, Who Targets Me. Um, I've downloaded and added it, but as yet, it's not gathered enough data on my website doings. Haha, <laughs> I'm so goddamn sneaky online slash really boring. So I'll let you know the results if I remember to after the summer. And that's it for now. And hopefully that that'll send you into the summer being hugely paranoid about everything you do online. Have fun with your holiday snaps. Um, and when this show returns in the autumn, I'm going to be needing some new interviewees. And so look, you've got at least six weeks to send in recommendations this time. So you can definitely, definitely contact me via the form on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk. Um, email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast.gmail.com or shout at me on the at Parpolbro Twitter or the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group. Or you can design an unnecessarily large banner and carry it with you to Green Man Festival and hold it up during my set. And I'll not be able to see it because usually stage lights are really bright and loads of people get angry with you for blocking their view until you're escorted out and have to wave it at the fleet foxes instead or just get confused or swap their folk warblings for some in-depth political discussion either way that's a win isn't it definitely do that uh, or just email maybe just email <laughs> And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast and for this season's or runs. I don't know what you call these things, but that is it until maybe at least mid-September, unless something truly bonkers happens, in which case I'll try my best to do some sort of mini updates. Um, but there's also more than ample time to give this show a review on your podcast apps and your adcast pops, or to donate to the Ko-fi or Patreon sites, or in fact, even just fill in the survey, please. That would be really important. Um, and of course, get in touch about anything else, really, although podcast or politics related is probably better. Um, I'm really bad at advice on sun cream. I always get burnt. Don't ask me about that. Sweaty is. I'm your man. Sun cream, not so much. Um, big thank you to Acast for letting this show shelter in its audio haven. And to my brother, the last skeptic, who you can hear play at Bestival in September if you're going to that. Um, I think he's on the Friday in the Bollywood and Big Top Tents before Goldie. But double check that because I don't really know anything for certain ever. And I don't go to Bestival. It's full of young people. Young people having fun. It's disgusting. Um, this will be back after the summer when Theresa May returns from her walking holiday to announce that we'll be having a snap general people's election referendum at the same time as a conservative leadership contest a national government of unity and a guess how many sweets are in the jar sweepstake ultimately delegating all responsibility onto absolutely everyone else and resulting in Susie age six from Fanny Barks in Durham somehow getting a lot of sweets and the job of prime minister bye this week's podcast was brought to you by Vince Cable's new anti-Brexit centrist party the Liberal Democrats do you feel no party represents you? Are the Conservatives too right-wing, Labour too left-wing, UKIP too wingdings, and Green not using wings due to their effect on the environment? Did you like standing right in the centre with your middle-of-the-road music, like um, Travis probably, and the thrill of constantly being in danger of being hit by a car? Well now, the Liberal Democrats are here to gently hold your hand, but not in a creepy way. We are a new anti-Brexit centrist party, and not at all like the Liberal Democrats that no one likes anymore. 
They have a yellowy orangey bird for their logo. We, well, we have an orangey yellowy bird for ours. They're fighting to keep Britain open, tolerant and united, but we're fighting for a united, tolerant and open Britain. So, you know, totally different. Even our leader is a different Vince Cable to the one you're thinking of. Yeah, sure, they look the same, but that is like, it's just a total coincidence. It's like loads of that happens around the world. Vote Dib Lems, because who cares about tuition fees or gay sex anyway? I mean, why would we? No, you brought it up. No, you did. No, you did. <laughs> Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.